Hey there, Andrew here, uh, running into a new episode of the Culloden Christian Assembly's Home Bible Study Podcast, um, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. We're looking at um, the book of Hebrews and we're, we're into chapter number 9 for this uh, study. Um, when I was thinking of this study, um, these are the hard chapters really. Uh, there's so much in them. They're packed full of information. I've tried to emphasize the fact that if we get an understanding of the terms, it really helps uh, us to understand the argument. What What's very clear so far is that two systems of approach to God, if you like, are being contrasted. Two times God has spoken. We, we see that in the first verse or two of Hebrews. Um, and so what we're doing is contrasting Judaism and Christianity, keeping that in mind uh, and the fact that he's drawing their attentions to Christ, how great he is, um, the, the the approach and the place that Christians now have in, in God's presence is really important the whole way through the book. And if you hold that before you, it will really help you to understand some of the smaller details of this book. So, um, first of all, we'll just commend ourselves to God in prayer and we will look at this chapter again together. Um, really, we're going to concentrate on a greater sanctuary today. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, we'll see as we go through it. So, let's commend ourselves to God in prayer. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus and we thank you for this opportunity just of um, putting the burden of, of our talk in your hands. We thank you for the Bible study that we've already had on the subject. We pray that anybody that listens to the podcast might also be blessed in the Lord's name. Amen. Okay, so just by way of introduction, if you have the handout, you can download it obviously in the podcast site. You'll notice I've put at the, at the beginning uh, something about this contrast, the contrast between Judaism and Christianity. The old system of Judaism was linked to a priesthood that was limited and a high priest, whoever it was, that was weak. And this is a contrast, of course, to Christianity where we have an eternal priesthood and a high priest living in the power of an endless life with a character that's purer and richer um, than even the beautiful garments that were on the old high priest. So we have come to understand that this section for chapter 7 to chapter 10, there are many differences between the old covenant and the new covenant being contrasted. The salvation that the Lord offers is greater than the covenant that he mediates is infinitely deeper and fuller. The sanctuary he occupies is greater and all this is based upon a once for all perfect sacrifice. And what it does for the adherent to the system, if you like, is something very different. We're going to see that in the end of chapter 10. We now come in this full assurance of faith that we have, having had our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Um, we'll think about that when we get there next study. It's really important that we see these th themes, however, of a sanctuary and a covenant and, and offerings, sacrifice, if you like, um, all these kind of words, that we see that they're all intertwined and interconnected. You can't have one without the other. The covenant needs a, a covenant sacrifice. Uh, the, the, the sanctuary needs a, um, 
a way of approach. It needs a sacrifice for approach. And so by the time we get to the end of our chapter, the focus is mainly not going to be in the sanctuary anymore, but on the sacrifice. And we're going to think about how the Lord's sacrifice at the cross is so much more uh, important than the old sacrifices of the old system. Of course, when we've already looked at um, um, this subject in some measure in in chapter 8, we contrasted the old covenant with the new covenant. And when we mean the old covenant, we're talking about Sinai. There were other covenants that were made. There was the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, those kind of covenants. We're not really focusing on them. We're, we're focusing on a very specific covenant that was made with the earthly people of God, if you like, uh, the nation of Israel, when they were taken out of the land of Egypt. Now, you think of it. They came across the Red Sea. They came into the wilderness. Uh, God redeemed them by blood and power, but it was a kind of national redemption, a, a pictorial redemption. It wasn't like that everybody there was now automatically going home to heaven and had received true uh, eternal redemption. That, that wasn't the truth at all. It was it was as a nation. Now, there were some that responded to God in faith and, and, and new cleansing and forgiveness. We know that. Uh, I'm not saying there wasn't, but, but it was that kind of external, national blessing that they had um they they had they were closer to god in the sense they had god's oracles they had god um doing many wonders among them uh, but they need to still individually respond in faith to that message and so this is something that's already been touched on earlier uh, in earlier chapters that the parallel is being drawn now in the new covenant as you want to think each individual that comes into the blessing of that new covenant does so on an individual basis your their sins and their iniquities god will remember no more we, we read that in chapter eight um we, we read in chapter eight also of course that that as far as um god is concerned they would know him uh, and, and no one would need to tell their neighbour how to know the Lord because all would know him, not just knowing about him, they would know him. Uh, and, and of course, um, the, these kind of promises, um, also the, the promise that um, the, the law would not be written in stone as it were, but, but on the heart, uh, these are individual, personal, real differences between the old covenant, which was written in stone, and the new covenant that was written and is written in the heart, the, the blessings of that new covenant written in the heart. So the old covenant was uh, for Israel and Judah. The new covenant in its initial primary and prophetic aspect is again written for Israel uh, and Judah. However, we can see from throughout the New Testament that the blessings of that covenant are ours in Christ. And so Christians have come into the good of the new covenant blessings. This is extremely important to understand because it helps us um, mightily to understand a lot of the bits and pieces of the uh, New Testament. Oh, okay, just to, to mention a couple of contrasts in the Old Covenant and New Covenant, and then we'll get into our chapter in more detail. Um, as far as the Old Covenant is concerned, the mediator was Moses. Uh, you can look at uh, Exodus 19 for that. The mediator of the New Covenant is Christ. Um, and of course, Jeremiah um, 31, Ezekiel 37 uh, are the passages that you want to refer to. Um, 
The, the old covenant was a bilateral agreement, a contract, if you like, that if one side broke it, the other side, um, in this case God, um, could just bring the judgments of that covenant to bear. Uh, and, you know, it, it, if you do this, you will be a special people, a peculiar people for me, that kind of thing. Um, so there was obligation upon them. It was bilateral. Both sides had, had an important bit in that agreement. Uh, that was the kind of flaw in it, the flaw in the law, the flaw in the old covenant um, was was the fact that mankind was involved in it, their personal effort was involved in it. However, the the new covenant is unilateral. Now the other expression some people use here is conditional and unconditional. You can use that if you like. Um, I think perhaps bilateral and unilateral are maybe more helpful. Anyway, the new covenant, it's not so much thou shalt do this or or if you do this, I will bless you. It's it's not really couched in that terminology. It's not Exodus 19. It's, it's Jeremiah 31. Um, and, and there we read uh, very specifically, I will place a new heart on, uh, in them. You know, I, I will write the law, the law in their heart and in their minds. I will um, be their God. I, I, I will... Uh, for forgive their sins, so on and so forth. And so you can see the difference there. There's a covenant sacrifice associated with each one. We'll get into that later on. Um, they're both made with the nation of Israel. That's important in the argument, the reason why it's even emphasized in chapter 8, because um, he's telling us that the, the old covenant, if it was sufficient, why was there a need for a new covenant? And, and of course, if if the new covenant wasn't made with the same people, that would be a fallacious argument. It just wouldn't make sense. So it's important we see that. The, the Old Covenant emphasizes the outward and the visible and the tangible. We'll see that in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, there, there's, it's all an emphasis on, on what's outward and showy. And, and it was a picture of something deeper and, and more real. But the New Covenant is inward and invisible. Second Corinthians 3 brings that out. There's a fading glory and an unfading glory associated with these two covenants. And we could go on. Look at the list I've, I've given to you um, in um, in the handout. Uh, I'll, I'll go into this in a lot more detail. Okay, so what I want to do just now is if, divide this section into two, two main parts. Um, in the first part, we'll, we'll look at... Um, Chapter 9, verse 1 to 12, the greater sanctuary and service. We'll read that together and think about it. And in the second section, we'll think of this how this necessitates a greater sacrifice. So the greater sanctuary and service and the greater sacrifice, if you like, in the second uh, section. So let's read um, chapter um, 9, verse 1 to 12 together. Then indeed, even the first covenant, that's of Sinai, had ordinances of divine service and an earthly sanctuary. It had a way of approach to God um, through this divine service and earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. 
and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been prepared, the, the pre- priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, but into the second part of the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performs the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerning only was concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not of this creation. Okay, so that's that's chapter 8, verse 1 to, 12, 1 to 11, actually, I've read there. <clears throat> so let's let's think about this. The greater sanctuary and the greater service. Um, maybe you should read verse number 12. Not with the blood of bulls and of calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. I kind of finishes that section. Sorry about that. So we have firstly the layout of the sanctuary. You'll see that's brought before us in the first five verses. Um, there, this first covenant, it had ordinances of divine service. It had, it had a, a system of worship, we might say. And an earthly sanctuary, there was a, a physical building. We know that right back to the tabernacle uh, that's brought to us in Exodus. And of course, as we move forward through the temple as well. For a tab- the tabernacle was prepared, and then he goes into the d- details of it. The first part, there's, there were two rooms in the, the actual structure of the tabernacle. The first room, in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So that was called a holy place. And behind the second veil, so there's another veil, a division, a curtain, um, the, the room uh, of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies. The most holy place, which had the golden censer, or we could say it read golden altar, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which was a golden pot which had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of which things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, you see that last statement, of which things we cannot now speak in detail. That's telling us something. It's telling us that there's a whole lot of truth that can be unpacked from these things, that can be developed. And so the New Testament is giving allowance for us to unpack what's really involved in the Old Testament sacrifice. Uh, But that's by the by. We can't, unfortunately, due to the time constraints, look at it in a lot of detail uh, this this today but what i will say is this it's very clear he's saying there's these two compartments and there are some vessels that are associated with one compartment and then of course there's the ark and the mercy seat um, and that's a that's connected very closely with the the holy of holies the inner part and he's going to bring out something from this structure that that they should see very obviously as, as they look at the tabernacle, as they, as they think about the ancient tabernacle, there's something that's so blindingly obvious that they should see. Now, he does mention the golden censer here. It could be that his emphasis is on the censer. You notice he doesn't say that it is in 
the holiest of all. He says that uh, it belongs to the holy, which had the golden censer. Now he does say, he speaks about other things that are in, in the first part for instance, in it is the lampstand and the table and the showbread and then there's another um, you know, division and then, which had so actually what he's telling us is something that we, we need to understand. It's not that the holiest of all had the golden altar, the golden censer in it, but that they were uniquely connected with that they brought incense and fragrance into that most holy place. And so they're associated with it. I'm just saying it so you don't think it's a contradiction. It's not. Now, he says in verse number six, um, Now, these things being thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Now what's he going to make of this? He's he's given us the layout of the sanctuary and the limitations of the service. They were only allowed into the first room most of the time and only the high priest on one day of the year was allowed into the inner uh, sanctuary. The Holy Spirit indicates this. Lessons from the Spirit, verse 8 to 10. That the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So so it's obvious if you come up against a big wall with cherubim on it, that's what was on the, it's not a wall, a, a wall, a curtain if you like, maybe more accurately, that a veil, like you can't get past you're not allowed to go past that. And, and there, you're, you're up against a big keep out sign, which is saying, not, no, no, it's not available. You can't come that close to God. That, that's what you're, you're learning. You're learning that there is a restriction. The holiest of all, the way into that was not yet made manifest while the tabernacle was still standing. Now, of course, the the basic principle in the Old Testament was that eventually God wants to dwell with his people. He wanted to close to his people. And what we're seeing is that there's distance in the old system. That you, you, you can't get close to God in that sense, even symbolically. And it was symbolic, he says, for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices, this is 86, or roughly, um, gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make... Him who performs the service perfect with regard to the conscience. So what he's saying is, listen, the services that they do, whatever they are, not only does the structure tell us that there's a barrier, the services that are performed don't deal with the conscience, they don't deal with the inner problem of sin. They just deal with an outward remembrance of it. You'll deal with this more in the next chapter. Only concerned with foods and drinks, various washings, fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation or the time of the new order. In other words, all of it was looking forward to a time when something would be greater and better. It doesn't deal with sin. It doesn't make anything perfect. It doesn't bring someone into God's presence. It has this barrier. All these things point and and to a Jewish mind should point out the fact that there's a limitation and and under the it's not the end goal of God for His people. 
But Christ came, he says. Now notice the, the change. We've looked at the layout of the sanctuary, the limits of the service. We've thought of the lessons from the Spirit that come out of that. And then we have everything coming under the light of Christ's service. Look at verse number uh, 11 and 12. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So, so Christ came as a high priest of, of good things already come, it can be translated, uh, with the, or through the, again it can be translated that, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Well, he's, he's saying, listen, that old structure, that small structure like last chapter, that was ju- it's just a model of the real thing. It's just a small thing. But the greater and more perfect, more complete tabernacle, the, the, the high priest, the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, has gone through that. And, and, and he has gone in to the most holy place once for all. He's, it's not like that every year there's been a repetition of a little a ceremony where a high priest goes in and just stays for a little while. No, he has gone once for all into the inner shrine, the true inner shrine, not this, this small box on earth, but right up in heaven. So Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with a greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not of this creation. Not with the blood of bulls and calves, he says. Now, the other thing to remember is, he says, that high priest, when he goes into that inner place, he goes in with the blood of bulls and calves, but with his own blood, he has entered the most perfect holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. There's so many things in this verse that are, that, that are key uh, to understanding uh, how great his sacrifice really is. He has obtained this eternal redemption, not this kind of temporal um, yearly remembrance of, of a, a physical redemption from Egypt. No, no, an eternal redemption based on Christ's blood, not on the blood of bulls and goats. And so the greater sanctuary and service is being brought into view here. So these, these Jewish believers, just think of it. Here they are and they're hankering back, potentially, after Judaism and the smells and the sights and the sounds and they're being told, now listen, just remember what you have in Christ. You, you're linked to a greater sanctuary. Uh, you, you're linked to uh, a service of the great high priest who's gone into the very presence of God on that one occasion. And, and he's there, and the value of what he has done on that one occasion is sufficient for us now. And we have been brought in. And we've been perfect as he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us that we are that, that veil has been removed, all these kind of things. And and we can now come actually into the immediate presence of God. Now think about it. In the old system, Jewish people um symbolically they could only um one one high priest could only go in on one day of the year to the immediate presence of God. And yet in Christianity at any point of your life, you come into God's presence in prayer. You don't come into a, a physical building or, or, or an earthly tabernacle. It's not a small picture of what's true. It is the true immediate presence of God that you come into. Whether you understand that or not, that's what's being taught here. 
and you come in virtue and value of the precious blood that was shed and of the one who has already entered in that in, in the virtue of that blood and so so this is the massive contrast that's being made a greater sanctuary and a greater service now, now let's focus in just in for the last few minutes on the greater sacrifice uh, from chapter uh, 9 verse 13 to 20 Eight. Now, a lot could be said, not with the blood of bulls and goats, sorry, goats uh, and calves, but with his own blood. So, you think of um, the fact that he was voluntarily involved in this. His, his, it was his own blood. That's what's being emphasised. It's, it's not the blood of bulls and goats. They have very little value in the big scheme of things. They didn't, do, are not voluntarily involved in giving of themselves. And, and what would their blood do anyway for us? So not with the blood of bulls and of goats, but with his own blood. So the first thing we notice about this blood, and you'll notice the rest of this section mentions blood, 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 the whole way down it. There's a number of other words come out, as we'll see when we go down, but Verse number twelve, we we mentioned that it's his own blood, it's Christ's blood that brings us, uh, brings him into the most holy place once for all, and he has obtained eternal redemption. This is not something that needs renewed or is something that 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 could be broken or anything like that. We have eternal forgiveness. We have eternal redemption, deliverance. So then we have not only Christ's blood. In this as this greater sacrifice, but we have cleansing blood. Look at verse number fourteen. Uh, for if the blood of bulls and goats, in fact, I'll read this section. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also be of necessity the death of a testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated with blood, but when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled the blood both in the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of blood there is no Remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He would then have suffered often since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the ages he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this a judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear the second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Okay, so, so the necessity of the greater sacrifice. Christ's blood is what's involved. It is cleansing blood as well. 
Verse number 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's given this contrast. He's thought about the, the, the red heifer, in which case the, the ashes of that heifer were kept and some ashes were put under running water. And, and then that water was taken and sprinkled on the flesh of an individual and he was pronounced ceremonially clean. It sanctifies, it sets apart for the purifying of the flesh. It it. it, it performs this rite of purification. If that is the case, if if something as insignificant as a few pieces of ash in water under God could be taken and, and, and could be ceremonially cleansing to the person that came along, how much more shall the blood of Christ... Now you see he's arguing, as he does often in Hebrews, he's arguing from the lesser... The, the kind of the the Hebrew symbol to the greater what what is in Christ. So how much more then shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If something as insignificant as ashes of a heifer can cleanse an outward thing, surely something as significant as the blood of Christ should cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So it's cleansing blood. Now let's think about this in a bit more detail. We need to drill down into this a little bit. The blood of Christ, it's his, his blood like we mentioned before. Uh, but then it says, who through the eternal spirit. This brings us to the cross. And it is interesting, we have the blood of Christ, the offering of Christ. We have the spirit involved in this by means of the eternal spirit. And he's offering himself without spot to God. We have the three members of the Trinity involved in this, I take it. Who through the eternal spirit. Why is that emphasized anyway? You Well, you know... Uh, it's the spirit, the idea of spirit, really emphasizes the thought of reality and uh, and depth. You you're not, you're not to just have an outward look at things, but um, for instance, uh, you know, not just the letter of the law, but the spirit. So the spirit is is what's behind the the commandment. That's the thought there. And so here, when it says that he through the eternal spirit offered himself, it was it was all the virtue uh, and reality of that offering um, by the eternal spirit. Not 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 just the spirit, but the eternal spirit. This is not a temporary measure. This is this is something that is like nothing else in history. The offering of Christ was through the eternal spirit. And then it says, without spot to God. Just as those Old Testament um, beasts had to be checked for blemishes, so when Christ comes to Calvary and offers himself through the eternal spirit, without spot to God, there's absolutely no blemish on his character, no stain on his person. There's nothing uh, and nothing within him that could uh, be in any way compatible with failure or, or flaw. And so he is perfect and he is the perfect sacrifice, the final sacrifice. 
And, and so if, if this sacrifice is so very great, what can we expect it to do? Well, what it can do is cleanse your conscience from dead works. Now, cleanse your conscience. Um, I see, take it that in Hebrews, um, to some extent anyway, the idea of conscience is, 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 is the thought of consciousness of sin. Um, so we can have our the consciousness of sin as a problem between us and God removed forever because of the shed blood of Calvary, cleansing our conscience from dead works. You see these people, what did they do? They went and they, they became a boy. Imagine in the old system, um, they feel their sense of sin every year, the guilt that comes between them. They come into God's presence. They come and bring their 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 old symbols of, of forgiveness. They, these animals and these sacrifices and so on. And and if there was no internal reality with them, uh, and they never trusted the Lord and realized that 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 for true forgiveness, as it says in Psalm fifty one, uh, you needed um, a, a repentant heart. If they didn't, they, they would just be involved with dead outward works. What a difference. This this can cleanse our us from dead outward works, uh, our conscience from dead outward works to serve the living God. So that's that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, think of how great the blood of Christ really is. So it's it's Christ's blood, it's cleansing blood. We'll come back to cleansing blood in a minute. It's covenantal blood, verse number fifteen. And for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Um, he's saying, listen, the old covenant was all about condemning. So if the Lord comes along and, and through his death he brings salvation, he can't be associated directly with that old covenant, can he? No, this is why he's the mediator of a new covenant. And the new covenant is, of course, all about forgiveness and grace. It's not law, it's grace. It's about um, a new relationship with God that never ceases, a, a promise from God that he is willing to keep, that he will be with his own. Um, and and, and it's, it's all about um, even a, a change in nature in the heart of the individual. Laws written on their heart and not on stone. And, and so he says, listen, for this reason, he's a mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. That those who are called may receive the promise of the in eternal inheritance. You see, the Jewish people, they were all looking for this temporal inheritance. They were looking to get into the land, to enjoy the land. But here, what he's saying is this. He's saying, actually, there's something far greater that we have as Christians. We have an eternal inheritance um, because of the, the, the new covenant that's been mediated to us. In Christ and through his death. And then he emphasizes the fact that death was necessary. So Christ's blood. It's cleansing blood. It's covenantal blood. Let's see what I mean by that. For where there is a testament. There must of necessity also be the death of the testator. For a testament is enforced force after men are dead. Since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Now many people feel that what, what the the writer is doing is lifting the thought of last will and testament. Um, you know, the same word covenant is the word 
that it's used for will uh, in, in the Greek. And so he's he's lifting up the 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 illustration of a will where you, there has to be uh, someone dies before the terms of that will are finalized, and before there will be no change to the terms of that will. The negotiation is surely over when a person dies, and, and the will comes into effect. Now that could be uh, what's here. Now there's another suggestion I make to you, for where there is a testament. There must of necessity be the death of the testator. Now, I don't think the testator, the person who was involved in making the testament, necessarily dies in and of himself. But he dies in the sacrifice victim that's given. So these are sacrifice covenants. And what happens is that you make the covenant promise, whatever it is, um, or agreement, and then the blood of sacrifice is shed. And in a sense, what you're saying is you're you're dying to changing that agreement, to changing that promise. Um, and so, in that sense, the testator dies in, in, in the, as represented in his sacrifice. Um, for a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Um, terms can be changed as, as the negotiations go on. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So he says, now listen, we know that this is true. Look at the first covenant. It was a blood sacrifice covenant. <coughs> so if that was the case, as he goes down this passage, what he's really coming to emphasize is this. He's saying that, that what we have in the death of Christ is the, the covenantal blood. The blood of the covenant. That has been shed. Now this is something that will come out in more detail as we go through the rest of, of Hebrews. And he's just giving us a little bit of it here and he'll deal with the rest of it later on. And so he goes into the details of um, what happened in the old, the old um, covenant that, that blood was sprinkled on the book and the people. Interestingly, um, not all these details are found in the, in the uh, Exodus account and might be from other sources that he had. Um, and almost, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so, as he comes to this, he's saying, listen, how essential the blood is for the covenant. That's the point he's making, I take it, at this juncture. It's necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. He says, listen, by the way, I've mentioned Christ's blood. I've mentioned cleansing blood, blood that cleanses the conscience. I've mentioned covenantal blood. But uh, there's another aspect he says to this cleansing blood. He speaks about purifying the tabernacle. See, what what happened in that sense was that, that, that the blood was sprinkled all over that tabernacle because the whole thing... The very way, the very access, every point of that access needed to be associated with a sacrifice. <coughs> he says, if that's true of the, the copies of the heavenly things, how much more true of the heavenly things themselves. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the heavenly things should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with, with better sacrifices than these. And of course, he's using a a plurality there, but he's speaking about the single sacrifice of Christ and its different aspects. 
And, and so he says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so there's a blood-sprinkled way for us right into God's immediate presence. That That's the point that's being made. Everything about this access to God has been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. He has inaugurated this way. He has opened... The, the new covenant. He has uh, has ratified that covenant in his blood and now there's a way right into the immediate presence of God and he has gone that way. Then it says, um, just as we come towards the end, and I don't want to deal with all the details of this because we'll pick it up in the next study that we're going to do. Uh, we have what I, I've termed culminating blood. Look at verse number 25. Not that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of another. So there's the high priest going in and out. Yom Kippur after Yom Kippur. Day of Atonement after Day of Atonement. And again and again, year after year, same old sacrifice, same old system. Nothing has to change. Everything's the same. And then he comes. He doesn't have to offer himself often. The high priest, he had to offer the blood of another often. But if that were the case, he would have, he would suffered often since the foundation of the world. Every time there was any need for forgiveness. But now once, at the culmination of the ages, the very chief, the focal point of all time, all the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and it is as it is appointed to men to die once after that this is a judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And to those who wait for him, he will appear the second time, apart from sin, for salvation. You will notice in this last little section, three times it mentions his appearing. It says he's now appearing in the presence of God for us, the end of 24. He appeared to put away sin in the past. And he is going to appear the second time, apart from sin, for salvation. So the th everything about our life down here is linked to our high priest who's in there. He has appeared for us in the past to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's the, the brazen altar. He has now gone into the immediate presence of God. He's in there in the holy, most holy place. Now to appear in the presence of God for us on his <clears throat> on his shoulder uh, on his heart our names are graven on his shoulders we are born if you look at that in more detail and and then he is coming going to come out again just as that high priest would come out after finishing everything and culminating everything he would come out and and, and that would be the whole system done for the year everything completed and another year would be we ticked off the calendar but now he's coming out when he comes out he is coming the second time apart from sin for salvation he's going to bring blessing to everyone who trusts in him so focusing on the greater sacrifice christ's blood cleansing blood covenantal blood and culminating blood may the lord bless uh, this little study and we just commend it to him for his blessing, shall we pray. Father, we're thankful to thee for thy kindness and for the opportunity just to 
share something of this chapter. We pray it will be a blessing to someone. We leave ourselves in thy presence. In the Lord's name, amen.